Welcome to Democracy in Question, the podcast series that explores the challenges that democracies around the world are facing today. I'm Shalini Randeria, Rector President of the Central European University in Vienna and Senior Fellow at the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. I'm really pleased to welcome today Yasha Monk, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and Professor of Practice at Johns Hopkins University. A regular contributor to The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Foreign Affairs. He's also a fellow podcaster and a public intellectual well known for his work on the crises of democracy and his defense of liberalism. Yasha is the author of several books, among which I'd like to just mention a couple here The People versus Democracy, with an interesting subtitle Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And most recently, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. That's the book published earlier this year that makes a strong case for embracing diversity despite all the difficulties that they could entail. And that is the book which will be the focus of our conversation. We seem to be standing at a historical juncture when the progress many democracies have made in embracing diversity over the course of the last several decades may easily unravel. The great experiment, as Yasha will explain, is not inevitably destined to succeed, but pessimism regarding its future is politically fraught with risk. What are the main threats to diverse societies and why is the timely recognition of these even more important in liberal democracies? I would also like to discuss Yasha's critical analysis of some fashionable radical leftist positions from the normative perspective of engaged empathetic universalism. Can we or should we overcome the framework of methodological nationalism when we talk about the future of diverse democracies? So is the nation state still the optimal scale for political action? How can diverse societies coexist with democratic institutions and governance structures on both the subnational as well as the supranational scales? Welcome, Yasha. It's a great pleasure having you on the podcast with me today. Thank you so much. I really look forward to this conversation over more after getting this little preview of what you'll push me on. So your new book makes a passionate plea for not only embracing, but also defending the diversity of democracies. Your definition of diverse democracies, and I'll come back on this, focuses primarily on the rapid changes in the ethnic and religious composition of various societies, for which you use the shorthand term the great experiment to emphasize that these demographic transformations the world over have not been consciously designed by anybody, unlike the discourse of the far right on the great replacement, for example. But these demographic transformations are unforeseen, maybe even unintended consequences of a wide range of historically and locally quite specific policies. So let's first talk a little bit about what you see as the main pitfalls of these democracies. Where does the danger lie? Because as we know, there is a fiction of homogeneity 
about the nation state and of the national polity, which is a fiction nurtured by many, not only far-right discourses, but also quite mainstream political discourses, which presuppose a permanent division between outsiders and insiders, however we may want to define these two categories. And so let's begin with your diagnosis of where the problems could lie. Thank you so much for setting out sort of a key premise of the book. Um, there are some democracies that have been very diverse since the founding and which are in many ways premised on trying to manage that ethnic and particularly religious diversity from the start. India comes to mind. But most democracies in the world were founded in one of two ways. Either they were founded at a moment when they were uh, more homogeneous than at most junctures in the history and in which they defined themselves by that homogeneity. Germany, where I grew up, in many ways Austria, uh, where your wonderful university is now located, are examples of that. There's another kind of set of democracies, like the one from which I'm speaking today, the United States, which have always been diverse. At the moment of the founding of the American Republic, there was, of course, a great variety of people in the country, including Native Americans and uh, enslaved African Americans. Uh, but those groups were not fully part of American democracy because they were excluded and subjugated in, in a times extreme ways. And so what's new in most democracies in the world today is uh, a situation which you have deep ethnic and religious diversity. And we are at least trying to treat uh, members of all of these different groups as full citizens and as true equals. That I call the great experiment because there's very little uh, historical uh, precedent for that. You know, I think the temptation is to say this shouldn't be so difficult. Why is it so hard not to be a bigot, not to hate your neighbor, uh, not to reject somebody because they have a different religion or a different color of skin? But I think when you look seriously at social science and when you look seriously at history, uh, you recognize that these forms of ethnic and religious diversity do pose a very significant challenge. And, and that's the case for three reasons. The first is a psychological instinct, that most human beings have an instinct to form groups and to favor the members of those groups over outsiders, over anybody who does not belong to that group. The second difficulty is that in most of history, of course, the thing that activated this in-group favoritism it did tend to fall along a number of lines of ascriptive identity. Not every single time, but uh, many of the worst crimes in human history, many of the worst uh, forms of pogroms and intercommunal violence, of war and civil war, of genocide and ethnic cleansing, uh, did pit the members of one ethnic or racial group, of one religion, uh, sometimes of one culture or nation or language group against another. And so we see that in the annals of history, this kind of in-group mechanism in the context of the sort of ethnic and religious diversity that is now so common in our democracies has particular potential for conflict. I mean, third, as a great believer in democracy, I was tempted to think that democratic institutions could help us solve these problems. And in certain respects, when you understand democratic institutions in the right way, I think they can. But there's also a respect in which the basic democratic mechanism actually makes it harder to keep ethnically and religiously diverse democracies together. Um, because if you're living in a monarchy or in an empire, 
then you didn't have any political power and I didn't have any political power. And so if your group has more children or more immigrants who look like you or grows in other ways, it doesn't really affect my political standing in an immediate sense. I just have to continue trusting the monarch. And if I do, it doesn't matter. Uh, a democracy is always a search for majorities. And so these fears where we've seen a rise on the far right in the most extreme way with this terrible conspiracy theory of a great replacement are in some ways driven by the democratic mechanism because it's the democratic mechanism which makes it tempting to think, hang on a second, I used to be in the majority that gave me a certain amount of power and influence in society and so on. And if this other group suddenly is growing demographically, then perhaps everything will change and that might be terrible. And so democratic institutions, if not designed in the right way, can actually exacerbate uh, the challenge. And so this is why we have to take the, the difficulty of building diverse democracies seriously. This is not a trivial undertaking. So, Yasha, let's begin by acknowledging what you just pointed out, the heavy burden of historical legacies. Throughout the book, uh, one senses, however, a constant tension between the pessimistic lessons one could derive from the past histories and your optimistic faith in the chances of the great experiment in diversity and diverse democracies to succeed in the future. In affirming this optimism of the will, you seem to be fighting a two-pronged battle. The pessimism is not limited to racist, xenophobic, ethno-nationalists of the right-wing populist kind who are uh, questioning whether a diverse uh, society and a diverse polity can be held together at all. But you seem to be equally concerned about the pessimism that pervades large sections of the left who are supporters of diversity and yet often refuse to see any signs of progress when it comes to, for example, in the US on issues of racial hierarchy, who feel that as far as structural racism is concerned, socioeconomic inequalities are concerned, the effects of past oppression, African-Americans are where they were a century ago. And you are calling here for self-reflexive universalism in the face of what you see as the centrifugal forces of rigid identity politics on both sides. So could you elaborate on why you consider the pessimism of the left to be so dangerous? I think the pessimism on the right is evident to most people. But why is it that the pessimism of the left is such a political risk? So there is a tension between pessimism and optimism, both in my book and in the broader discussion. The way I tend to think about it now is that most people start thinking, you know, it should be easy to build these diverse democracies. This isn't hard. Uh, and yet, when you look at reality, you see all of these problems and injustices. And so that should make us really pessimistic. It should make us very depressed about what we've achieved so far. And it should make us very skeptical that we should be able to do better in the future. Because if we keep failing at a simple task, then there's very little reason to think that we might learn to do better in the coming decades. So it's tempting to move from what I would call a naive optimism to a pretty deep fatalism. The sort of arc of my argument in this book is the inverse of that. Uh, I think that when you look seriously at the history of diverse democracies and when you look at many diverse societies in the world today, that gives you a lot of reason for pessimism or at least for recognizing just how difficult an undertaking this is. But that in turn allows us to look back at uh, most developed democracies today and actually be quite proud of what they've accomplished. 
recognize the ways in which for all the real problems and injustices they do have, uh, they are much better societies to live for the vast majority of our citizens than they were 150 or even 25 years ago. And that in turn can give us a hard-won confidence that it is at least possible to continue to make progress along those lines. Now, uh, there is a deep pessimism on the right. There is a set of arguments, especially on the far right, which essentially say that the only reason for the historical success of countries like Austria or the United Kingdom or the United States or Australia is the ethnic or perhaps cultural group which has historically made up those societies and that uh, immigration from other countries and demographic change uh, is therefore going to erode the preconditions of that success. Uh, we know that pessimism, and I assume that most listeners to this podcast don't share it, but there is a, a weird echo of that pessimism on the left, which rightly rejects the idea that there's anything inferior about the immigrants coming into uh, these societies, for example, but which actually says that they're not succeeding because of the amount of discrimination they face, for example. And uh, I think when you look at sociological studies, it turns out that this tends to be wrong. So let's take something as simple as language. Uh, many people on the far right fear that in a country like the United States, immigrants from Mexico uh, will never really acquire the English language, or that immigrants from China may start to build enclaves in which they just speak uh, Mandarin or another cynic language. And there's some voices on the left who say that's a good thing, that actually we shouldn't have a joint language, that uh, asking people to assimilate even in the most basic ways, like through the acquisition of language, is somehow an unfair imposition. If you actually look at sociology, this debate simply misses the real-world processes. Because what we see in real life is that the first generation sometimes struggles to learn the language. If you come to a new country in your 20s or 30s or 40s and you didn't have a chance to get a very good education in your own country and so on, you may find it very hard to acquire that language, and, and some people struggle. Their children are invariably very good in both languages. They often speak the language of origin with their parents, uh, but the majority of them prefer to speak English in this case uh, with their siblings, with their cousins, with uh, other people of a similar background of migration. And by the third generation, which might even be a little bit of a melancholic finding, only about 1% of people still retain any fluency in the language of their ancestors. Um, so these fears about lack of integration or the fantasies on parts of the left that it's wonderful that we're no longer going to have a joint language simply miss the sociological reality of how effective these processes of integration turn out to be. And so this proves that these racist ideas on the right are obviously wrong, but it also shows that uh, the extent of pessimism on the left is wrong. But despite real discrimination and real injustices that these immigrants face, uh, they are actually succeeding to a remarkable extent. And so I think that we are here in the danger of uh, adopting a set of positions which are very common on the left. And if we want to build diverse societies that are successful, we really have to reject those. So let me pick up two questions based on what you just said. 
And I'm wondering, Yasha, on the one hand, if this ideal of diverse democracies is very American in its rather culturalist emphasis, because in a sense what it does is to uh, focus much more on differences of cultures, but also differences, the centrality of race, uh, ethnicity, as the salient, descriptive categories which may make or break the future of diverse democracies. And my question to you here would be, don't you think one of the things which may make or break the future of uh, diverse or not-so-diverse democracies may be the whole question of inequality and of patriarchy. So what is the relationship of questions of gender and class to these descriptive uh, categories of race, ethnicity, uh, which are very easily coded in culturalist terms? Yeah, I think that there is a, a big connection between those topics. Um, and one of the problems is that they can be rival in the way we talk about things. And, and that, I think, can be very uh, problematic. Let me start with class. And then the case of gender is, uh, I think, a little bit more complicated in certain respects. Um, so on the issue of class, we've seen a big historical transformation that Thomas Piketty and others have chronicled in the nature of the left in the United States uh, and across the Western world, at least. And that is that, of course, the traditional demographic marker of whoever somebody was on the left was their class standing. If you were working class, you were much more likely to vote for the SPD in Germany, for the Labour Party in Britain, or for the Democrats in the United States uh, than if you were a member of the upper middle class. Today, we see that it is much harder to predict who somebody is voting for on the basis of class that at least among the white working class in many countries, the biggest party is no longer uh, the traditional left-wing parties like social democrats, but often far-right parties, and that many left-wing movements now have their core base in the highly educated urban electorate, which makes up the upwardly mobile upper-middle class of cities from Vienna to Paris to London to New York and LA and so on. I think today, a much better way of predicting whether somebody is voting for the left or the right would not be to ask about the welfare state. It would be to ask something like, you know, on the whole, do you think increased immigration would be an opportunity or a danger for your country? Something, something along those lines. And if people say that it's an opportunity, would then be left wing. But you could substitute that question with any number of social or uh, cultural questions. Um, when I think of gender... That is a very important issue, and, and we can discuss it in, in greater detail. There's obviously been a big cultural shift in the last years, which has allowed women to become much more powerful in society and much more fully participatory in the economy. In fact, according to many of the statistics about undergraduate education in the last number of countries, uh, women are now significantly outcompeting men with very interesting uh, sociological ramifications. The one reason why I don't focus as much on gender in this book as I do on questions of ethnic or religious diversity is that uh, we have, of course, always had men and women in our society. Um, but that form of diversity has always existed. And that because men and women still very often live together in households and as members of a same nuclear family, it doesn't tend to lead to uh, the same kinds of party political divisions. And even though we're now seeing 
young women in a number of Western countries being significantly more left-leaning than young men on, on many important issues, including, for example, abortion rights, the division in society is much more ideological than it is along the lines of gender. And so when you're thinking about sort of the lines along which diverse societies have historically fallen apart, or the lines along which you might have significant political or civic conflict in the future, I, I tend to think that for all of its importance, gender is less likely than class, but perhaps particularly than ethnicity or religion. So what about the urban-rural divide, uh, Yasha? That could be a very, very significant fault line, as we've seen both in the Brexit referendum, but we also saw in the votes cast for Trump in um, both the elections. So it's not just along ethnic or racial lines, but very much along education and along uh, urban-rural divide. Yeah, that, that I think is true. Um, and, and those two things go together. One of the reasons why the urban-rural divide is so much bigger now than it used to be is that economic opportunity is so much more concentrated in urban areas than it used to be. If you were making a decision about where to build your life in the United States in the 1970s, it's really not obvious whether you would have chosen to go to a mid-sized town in Michigan or in Oregon or whether you would have chosen to go to New York City. Today, uh, it is absolutely clear that you would have much more economic opportunity in New York than you would have in any of those kinds of towns. And so the vote for populists is concentrated, I believe, among people who feel distant from power. And there's a rural-urban dimension to that. And among people who are pessimistic about the future, and not just pessimistic about their own future. I think when you look at measures of individual income, there isn't a very clear pattern. But people who are pessimistic about the future of their communities, who think, I really don't know that my kids are going to do well. And if they do, then they really need to move. They can't stay around here. And if that's how you feel about the world, you're much more likely to vote for these authoritarian populists. So the urban-rural divide is important, but it is driven in good part by the deep political divide between people who are optimistic about their future, the future of their children, the future of their communities, uh, and the people who are deeply pessimistic about those things. So let me take you away from the U.S. for a moment, because I think one could raise the question about the scales of possibility and the feasibility for the success of the great experiment. In the U.S., uh, primarily in a nation-state framework, much more easily, because it's the country to which people have immigrated, and there is little out-migration. On the other hand, if we want to think about some of your policy prescriptions, which are primarily limited to the political economic framework of the nation state, and I agree with you entirely that uh, security of economic prospects, prosperity, universal solidarity, inclusive institutions, they all make perfect sense within nation state national administrative boundaries. The question here for me would be, are these prescriptions not far too concentrated on the nation state as the privileged unit of um, analysis, both for the governance of diverse democracies as well as for policymaking. That's why I want to draw you to Europe uh, and say there would be two counterexamples. One would be uh, something which you do talk about in the book, 
And those are multi-ethnic uh, empires in which um, religious minorities and uh, ethnic groups were actually not doing so badly. And the other experiment would be a supranational political unit. And this is where the European Union comes to mind. Would other kinds of polities be more suited to fostering a diverse polity than just a nation state? So let's take these two questions in turn. They're both very interesting challenges. Uh, I, I do think that there's something about multi-ethnic empires that makes it somewhat easier to deal with a certain kind of diversity. At least it's striking that many of the diverse societies in the history of the world that have succeeded the best, despite very real uh, ways in which they were unjust, uh, were those kinds of multi-ethnic empires, from Baghdad in the 9th century to Vienna in the 19th century. But this is not a realistic prescription for the present for a number of reasons, one of which is empirical. Um, these multi-ethnic empires don't currently exist, with perhaps one or two examples I'm not thinking of, but certainly not at any significant scale. I think it would be quite a quixotic crusade to try and uh, recreate them, and one that would only be accomplished in extremely cruel and unjust ways. And secondly, that, of course, we have reasons to want to live in democracy uh, that go beyond the question of ethnic or religious diversity. Um, we don't want to give up on the prospect of self-government. And if you add to our institutions of democratic self-government some core institutions which guarantee individual rights in the philosophical liberal tradition, uh, it makes it much easier to deal with that kind of diversity. And so that's why uh, multi-ethnic empires, I think, for both empirical and normative reasons, aren't the answer we're looking for here. On supranational institutions, I am very sympathetic to them. I am a deep believer in the European project. In fact, I was in part educated by the European project. I did the last two years of my high school schooling at a European school. And I think that the European Union is an important experiment in, in governance. Um, where I'm very skeptical is that the EU can uh, supplement for a national identity. I think the moment that you give people in Europe a choice and say, you are going to be either Austrian or European, you're going to be either Italian or European, they are going quite resoundingly to choose the national option, at least you know, for the foreseeable future. I don't want to speculate about what it will look like in 200 years, but I think over the course of our lifetimes, that will continue to be the case. Now, if you recognize that one of the wonderful things about identity is the way in which human beings can have multiple identities at the same time, the way in which they can say, I'm a proud citizen, of Rome, and I am a proud Italian, and I am a proud Catholic, and I'm also a proud European, then I think Europe can be an important part of the answer to how this particular continent governs itself. But I do think it is a mistake to put that European identity in competition with a national identity. And, and let me perhaps, because this is all a little bit abstract, also make a, a, a personal observation. No, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a German Jew, so nationalism certainly does not come naturally to me. And I'm somebody like you, and I imagine many of uh, the listeners to this podcast, who's lived in many different countries. I was raised in Germany. My parents are originally from Poland. 
Uh, I have lived in Italy and France, gone to college in the United Kingdom, and now live in the United States. And I love all of those countries, and that is one of the wonderful things about uh, multiple identities. I can uh, have a real sense of connection to each of those places. But they are very different from each other, it turns out. Uh, the culture of Germany continues to be very different from the culture of France, and the culture of France continues to be very different from the culture of the United Kingdom. And we can try to ignore that driven by uh, some kind of abstract conception of the kinds of countries we want to live in. But in reality, that is very important. And I think it can be a positive thing. I actually think that many of these countries are building an inclusive form of patriotism based in part on civic values, but in part also on those forms of cultural belonging, on a sense uh, of uh, what it means to be German or Italian or, or, or French, uh, that is influenced in good part by the contributions of immigrants from all over the world. And that can be an important resource in building the kinds of diverse democracies we're talking about. So let me pick up exactly that idea of yours, which in the book you use the notion of cultural patriotism, drawing on uh, my discipline of uh, cultural anthropology. You framed it at the moment very much in national terms by talking about national cultures. And I want to draw you out on this by asking you whether you think some of these um, notions of cultural patriotism that you are imagining, would they not be easier if one were to think about them as working in more local spaces, even neighborhood spaces, so that in a city like Berlin or London, it's not so much about national culture as about diversity of local cultures, and that people don't really care so much about abstract political constitutional principles, but about uh, what you call, and I quote you, everyday sights, smells, sounds, and tastes, which are not uniform across a nation, and so that this kind of rich sensorium of cultural patriotism may not necessarily be national, although it may be the cornerstone of sustaining a lot of diversity in everyday life. So I think we're agreed on a lot there, but it'll be interesting to focus on the disagreement. So I think the agreement we have, first of all, unspoken because it's so obvious, is that we don't believe in forms of ethnic nationalism. The second, I surmise from your question, is that we share a certain skepticism of the extent to which civic patriotism is a sufficient account of what it means to love a country. But I'd like to draw that out. So I, I think civic patriotism is an important element of a helpful patriotism, in particular because it allows us to explain why it's perfectly possible to have a deep attachment to a country and yet criticize it. Uh, why I think some of the most patriotic people I've seen in the last months are those a few but very brave Russians who have uh, been protesting against Vladimir Putin's terrible war uh, in Ukraine, saying not in our name, not in the name of our nation. But there are two problems with uh, civic accounts of patriotism that I always get stuck on. Uh, the first is philosophical, which is that patriotism is always the love of something specific or particular. It doesn't have to mean that you dislike anything else, but it means that you have a special relationship to your own country, in the same way in which uh, you can be in love with your romantic partner without therefore disliking any other human being. You just have a special concern for that person. But the civic values of different uh, democracies are actually quite similar to each other. 
and even their constitutions don't differ uh, that drastically. And yet, let's say an Indian patriot uh, is not going to suddenly become an Australian or an American patriot just because Australia or America might decide to uh, adopt word for word the Indian constitution. We all know that that makes no sense. So I think philosophically, uh, uh, civic patriotism has, has trouble explaining the specificity of that sentiment. And then uh, sociologically, if you like, I think it's simply uh, built on an illusion about how most people feel and act. Most people just don't care that much about politics as, as we would like to think. And so the idea that when you ask them why they love a country, they would respond by saying the Constitution or in the United States, the Declaration of Independence, simply isn't uh, quite realistic. So uh, as somebody who nevertheless thinks that it is important to have some connective tissue and to emphasize some of the ways in which we are connected to each other at the national level, precisely also to help us have something beyond the subnational level that can expand and draw out our circle of sympathy, which can inspire more solidarity with each other, it's important to find something else. And for me, that lies in cultural patriotism. And I agree with you that it's perfectly acceptable and wonderful to have a local patriotism as well, to say that you're somebody who was born and raised in Clapham and you have a deep affection for that part of the world and that can inspire in you uh, special forms of solidarity. Um, so ultimately, it becomes an empirical question. And, and, and I do think that national uh, differences continue to be bigger than people recognize, that especially very diverse nations, uh, geographically diverse nations as well, tend to underestimate how much they have in common compared to neighboring countries. Um, for all of the differences within the United Kingdom, the UK is in fact a very different country uh, from Italy, uh, which also has deep geographic diversity. And yet, you know, you put an Italian from anywhere and a Brit from anywhere in a third country, and the Italians will feel uh, a certain kind of kinship, and the Brits will feel a certain kind of kinship. And so I think the way that I have thought about the world and experienced the world and read about the world, uh, I've come to the conclusion that for now, at least, nations do continue to set the culture of countries to a remarkable extent, and that... Therefore, most people do actually continue to feel a real connection to nations at that level. Uh, Yasha, let me turn to another uh, key conceptual uh, innovation in the book, which I found quite striking, and that's the metaphor of the public park as you use it. Uh, so transcending the conventional metaphors of the melting pot with all its connotations of uniformity, assimilation, but also not using the metaphor of the salad bowl for the communitarian, multicultural societies, which may, like ingredients of the salad bowl, fall apart into fragments. You draw on your own personal experience of public parks, which are open to everyone. They are free spaces. They give various different options for using them, and they certainly create a vibrant space for encounters of all kinds. It's a catchy metaphor. The question I have for you is, how does one translate this spatial context of the metaphor and the scale of the park into actual sociopolitical practices on a much larger scale? That is, what would be the infrastructural underpinnings, the preconditions necessary for the public park metaphor to work? So on the one hand, it would mean commons, 
land which is not divided up into private property or a beach which is also not turned into private property. Also, it would need surveillance or disciplinary infrastructure in terms of policing of public space. And I say this as a woman who is wary of public spaces, parks at night. Can you say something about your use of the metaphor and how you think about the kinds of preconditions it would need for this to be the innovative way to think about the project. So, so yeah, there's, you know, this, this uh, competition of metaphors for what a diverse society and a society of immigration should look like. There's the melting pot, which when you go back to read the original play by Israel Zangweiler, which inspired this idea, actually has a real moral force because it is asking people to leave behind even the most violent and bloody historical animosities in a truly inspiring way. I don't know if that is a literary beautiful play, but it is actually a very interesting one. I encourage everybody to go and read it if you like. You can find it on the internet. Um, but the melting pot has historically come to stand for a model of society in which people have to give up their local specificities or their ancestral specificities, in which what it means to become a true member of a new nation is to give up any meaningful heritage that you have uh, from uh, your parents or grandparents and their culture or religion. And that, I think, is obviously a mistake. Then uh, a lot of sociologists and other academics embraced uh, a counter model, that of a salad bowl or, or of a mosaic. Um, and that, I think, uh, gave up too much on the need for some form of connective tissue. It essentially ended up implying that uh, we are just going to have these groups living in parallel with each other without any uh, real connections between them. And I think you can see from countries like Lebanon what kind of danger ensues when connective tissue between different uh, constitutive member communities within a state erodes to, to such an extent, when people are just defined by the membership in some subnational group rather than a shared sense of citizenship as well. And so that's what motivates this metaphor of a public park for me. Because the striking thing about a public park is that, Shalini, if, if we were in the same place, as sadly we're not, we're recording this remotely, we could, after this conversation, go to a park and continue the conversation and saying we're in the middle of, of trying to hash these questions out. We don't really want to talk to anybody else. Or we might go and uh, start chatting with people who are sitting next to us and, and build that kind of connection. And and those are two freedoms that the citizens of diverse societies also need to have. They need to have the right to say, the most important thing to me is uh, the group uh, of which I'm already a part, for example, the cultural or religious group in which I grew up. But they also need to have the ability to go and connect uh, with other people, to build that connective tissue, to build new friendships, to strike out on a new kind of path. And even for both of these freedoms are important and both of those choices are perfectly legitimate, we can look at this from the outside and say a public park in which people never come into conversation with each other is a little bit sad and one in which uh, people sometimes strike up new friendships and there's social interactions that happen. That's the kind of space that we want to encourage. Uh, and the same goes for a diverse society. Uh, we need a minimum of connection between different people. But as you're saying, uh, that needs... Uh, a certain number of preconditions. So first, there have to be opportunities for people to actually meet. Some of those opportunities, as a metaphor implies, are physical ones, right? They're actual public parks and squares and so on, 
which facilitate that kind of encounter. And there's a whole field of urban design, which is fought intelligently about what it means to build uh, cities and spaces and institutions where that exists. But, but it goes not just for physical space. It's also a question of what kind of educational and uh, even commercial institutions we need for people to be able to connect to each other in those kinds of ways. How do you run a university in ways that encourage people from different national, cultural backgrounds, class backgrounds, religions, to actually learn together and build relationships with each other rather than uh, sort of sitting next to each other in certain classes, but basically ignoring each other? What does it mean in terms of uh, a vibrant network of associations that actually attracts people of different walks of life? I think all of those are really important questions uh, uh, for the success of diverse democracies. And then finally, you're right, and I emphasize this in the book, but there are certain preconditions. But if you want people in a park to be open to new encounters, then you also need a police force, which ensures that uh, if somebody tries to steal your wallet or to harm you physically, or if somebody tells you how you're supposed to behave in the park without having a good reason to uh, be able to demand that, then you need to be able to have redress. So we also have to set very clear background conditions which facilitate uh, the confidence and the safety for people to then have those encounters. I think you're making a very, very important point, Yasha, because I think it's, it is really the public infrastructure, which is not just public parks, but as you very rightly point out, playgrounds, public schools, public libraries, um, swimming pools, infrastructure, which is accessible to all, which is one of the infrastructural preconditions for flourishing, thriving democracies. So I was wondering, when I was reading the book, you choose to focus on affluent, not just stable, mature democracies, established democracies, which can also experience a lot of backsliding, as we are witnessing in both the United Kingdom and the US these days. But you choose to focus on affluent democracies. And I asked myself, what kind of success of the great experiment in diversity would we be thinking about if we were to expand the geographical remit of your argument and uh, transpose it to um, India, for example. But we could transpose it to other parts of the world in which austerity politics has really whittled down all of this public infrastructure. And therefore, the larger um, political economy question for me would be, can we sustain these diverse liberal democracies in a world in which there is so much inequality and unevenness? So I'm going to give a very simple answer, which is you need a sense that you can fully participate in society and, and you need optimism about the future. You need to have a sense that you can build a better life and the children are going to be able to build a better life. And so, you know, I, I worry about inequality, but I worry even more about sustaining that sense that you can get a fair shake from life uh, and that the children are going to do better. Those questions are empirically related, of course, because if all of the gains from economic growth go to the very top, uh, then you're not going to have real improvements in living standards. Uh, but I am less worried about how much money the very richest in society have than I am about the stagnation of living standards for about half of people in many uh, developed democracies over the last 50 years. 
So thank you very much, Yasha, for this really fascinating conversation around the complex arguments which your book is making on the need to think about how best we can preserve not only liberal democracies, but liberal democracies in diverse societies. Thank you so much. Really love this conversation. So let me wrap up. We stand at historical crossroads. The progress that many democracies have made in accommodating ethnic, racial, or religious diversity may easily be undone. A homogenous nation state was never a reality anywhere in the world at any time. It always was and is a fiction, one, however, that has been successfully pushed forward by populist right-wing leaders and movements all over the world. Many mainstream political discourses have also adopted the idea of a permanent division between us and them, so-called outsiders and favored insiders defined by race, religion, or ethnicity. These discourses claim that only these insiders truly belong to the nation, and therefore the nation only really belongs to these majority groups. At the founding moment of American democracy, for example, not only were enslaved African Americans, but also Native Americans excluded from the polity. If democratic institutions are not designed in the right way, they can continue to pose a challenge that will be unable to correct this historical injustice. It is not only the xenophobic right-wing populists who pose a problem for American democracy, but also those on the left who undermine its very real achievements by denying them not to be enough. This leads to a lack of confidence in what has been already accomplished in terms of racial or economic equality within the United States. Despite all difficulties that they have to overcome, we should remember that immigrants are succeeding in the United States. An inclusive form of patriotism helps build strong civic identities and forms of cultural belonging that are necessary for a democracy to thrive. That is why democracies need public infrastructure, public libraries, public parks, public schools, spaces that are accessible to all, spaces of shared interaction across diverse groups and communities. This was the final episode of season four. Thank you very much for listening. We will be coming back soon with the first episode of season five. My guest will be Mary Caldor, professor at the London School of Economics, and I will discuss the whole question of human security rather than thinking of security only in terms of military security with her based on her latest policy brief written for the NATO. Please go back and listen to any episode you might have missed. And of course, let your friends know about this podcast if you're enjoying it. You can stay in touch with the work of the CEU at www.cu.edu 
and the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at www.graduateinstitute.ch backslash democracy.